Right. Welcome to the RSP cast, Film and Data, with Adam Harstead, Football Guys, Matt Waldman, Football Guys, something like that. So, uh, welcome, Adam. That's always nice having you on the show. It's it's great to, for you doing it. What are we going to talk about today? So there was a uh, tweet thread I saw yesterday by uh, Cade Massey. Uh, if you guys don't know Cade Massey, he's an economist. He's uh, most famous in a football context for an article uh, probably 20 years ago about the winner's curse, where he was looking at surplus value on draft picks. And he said, basically, like, look, the top picks are the best picks, obviously. They're the, the best and most productive players, but they're also the most expensive picks. And this was under the old rookie wage scale, where if you drafted Jamarcus Russell number one overall, he was instantly like the fifth highest paid quarterback in the NFL. And so as a result, you're not getting a whole lot of surplus value out of them. They're at best giving you as much value as they cost, but in reality, usually they give you less value than they cost. And in a league with salary cap, surplus value is, is how you win. You need players who are playing better than their contracts because if your players are playing worse than your contracts, you're, you're a losing team. And so he calculated the surplus value of every draft pick, and he found that actually the, the most valuable picks were in the early second round. And so when teams would like trade up in the first round and they're trading away their second round pick to move up in the first round, they're actually hurting their team from a salary cap standpoint because they're getting a little bit more production for a lot more money. Um, and so that, you know, that research has been replicated and it was, you know, very heavily discussed 20 years ago. He now does the Wharton Moneyball podcast. He's been very invested in the analytics space in football. Um, and he recently this week had a guest who was talking about modeling and he kind of went on a rant about uncertainty in modeling and that, you know, this is somebody who's obviously very invested in modeling, very into and pro analytics. Um, but basically the thrust is that from his standpoint, um, the biggest error in modelers is they're not giving enough due to uncertainty that, um, you know, they're, they're working so hard to fit their model to past outcomes that it's actually doing worse against future outcomes. And so a great example of this would be like the win probability models I'm sure you've all seen, where it'll, they'll have the live win probability models that say, oh, the Ravens have a 21 point lead with 12 minutes left. They have a 99% chance of winning. And everybody loves to dunk on them because, you know, anytime a team wins, people will go back and look at what their lowest percent chance of winning is and say, oh, the model said that this team had, you know, a less than 1% chance of winning and they wound up winning. And to some extent, this isn't a problem. If you say a team has a 1% chance of winning, that team should win 1% of the time. You know, if you have 100 teams and you give them all a 1% chance of winning, one of them needs to win. Otherwise, your percentage was off. But, you know, it's happening too frequently. It's not that 1% of teams with 1% chance of winning are going on to win. It's more like 5% of teams with 1% chance of winning. And the reason why is because, again, they're fitting off of past data. And, and the result is something statisticians call overfitting. Um, you know, the clearest example of this is, let's say I'm trying to predict test scores for a class of 30 students. And you give me, you know, I can use however many variables I want. I could use a variable of how long did they study for this test, right? How long, you know, like what were their previous test scores? And I can come up with a model that says, you know, based on their previous test scores and their time spent studying, I predict they're going to get this score on the next test. And I can test it against past results and be like, oh, yeah, this model was like 80% accurate on past results. That's a pretty good model. But if you give me unlimited variables, I could make a model that was 100% accurate on past results. I could say, if this person's name was Sarah, she scored a 79. If this person's name was David, she scored a he scored a 92, and on and on and on. The more variables you give me, the more accurately I can get it to match past results. But then, obviously, the less accurate it's going to be against future results, because I've overfit the model. I'm not looking at the things that actually matter. I'm just looking at the things that, that correlated better with the past. Um, and this has kind of been a bugaboo of mine. When I build models, my goal is to build them as simple as possible. Um, because, you know, the more uncertain a world is, the simpler the model needs to be. Because, you know, there's more uncertainty. You need to respect that. If, if your model is highly correlated with the past, you're probably dramatically overfitting. Um, and anyway, this, is, uh, this has long been a bugaboo of mine. Um, there's a 
psychologist named Gerd Gigerenzer, who, who his big thing is the more complex the environment you're trying to model, the simpler your heuristics should be. And that's kind of my, my jam. Um, I've discussed before, simple heuristics are nice because they're lazy. Um, and yeah, I just kind of wanted to bring up the idea of uncertainty, the idea of um, leaving room for uncertainty in your work um, and respecting the role that uncertainty plays. Um, and, and the fact that a better fit doesn't mean it's going to perform better and and just confidence um i mean i don't really know i know the basics of your process i don't how much uncertainty do you have in in your work you you have like error bars around your evaluations and how do you kind of deal with uncertainty yeah i mean for me i think it's just it's a matter of you know the uncertainty really comes i mean you're projecting when you're projecting performance it really is based on you know for me it's uncertainty because even though i have past data to that will help me say you know where i can look at thing look at information and say okay well how many players you know how many players have had success when they can't do perform this task you know it's I, I look at that and realize that there's always exceptions to that. Um, and there's also, there's so many different combinations of, of what makes a good player. I mean, you can have wide receiver, for instance, I mean, I, this is going to be a long way of answering, I'm sure, because as I'm trying to think through, through the question, but it's, I, I think about wide receivers and, and, you know, there's not, it's kind of the idea of saying, well, the this, the receivers who've all been successful in the past recent years are, you know, at least six two, two hundred and fifteen pounds, and have a BMI of X, Y, and Z. You know, to me, that's probably, you know, to me, you're kind of over, you're engineering something in a way, or overfitting. I think maybe that might be the way of putting it. But, um, whereas to me, there's, there's there's so many variables that there's compensatory factors in what you're looking at. You know, there are players who are smaller, but if they're very explosive, um, you know, you've got to look at like kind of the role that they have, the fit, the, um, the kind of skills that they have and how that could work out based on how they're going to be used. And, and so, you know, so for me, a lot of that is I don't really have like a model of per se of like they have to fit these exact things it's more about here's a long list of things that that make receivers successful these are the things that i you know do they perform them to expectation or not and then maybe there's like there are certain things that i found over the years where i would say that that the i weight scores and the the scores are weighted on a level of what I think is most or least important to a player's success. So for instance, you know, catching the football, certain types of ways that you catch the football are going to be very important and it's hard to teach those things. Um, but it doesn't mean that a player that we haven't had players who come along who don't perform those tasks well and are, and they're still successful because they have other, they have other qualities to their game. Um, it just, I think for me, I'll, I'll look at these, at, at these areas where they have more or less weight. And when I project players, it tends to be more based on th this is going to be harder for them to learn. It's not impossible, but you know, these are areas that, that are difficult. If they can't track a football, if they, um, if they have difficulty, um, with pad level or certain techniques, there are certain things that I'll look at and say, they they have to um you know the the difficulty of learning and getting better at that is pretty high and so that may limit their success or it may re take the, the either limits their success or 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 um or takes a longer ramp up time or takes a very specific fit and as a result of that you know maybe what what ends up happening there is that they they score lower but I don't. I very rarely would write off somebody based on based on that. So for when it comes to like predicting, you know, projecting information for me, that's the hardest part because it's like I don't really have 
a model per se of just of just saying well if they if they have these certain areas it's you know the 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 closest thing i have to that is just basically you know looking at looking at a score and putting in a range of a score and saying that you know the lower the score the more like the the more they have to accomplish to to be able to reach a certain point or the more specialized their role has to be and if their role has to be highly specialized then the odds are probably lower other than having a great you know unless they are in a perfect fit you know i think if i were to look back at a player and say that would have fit that way would have been a Cordero Patterson. If I had if I had known what I know now, I would have looked you know, player in you know, players like Cordero Patterson that come along. I would have looked at them and say, unless they change positions um, or have a very specific fit within their position, um, the, the the likelihood of them becoming productive NFL a productive NFL player would be very low. Yeah, I remember an article you did on um, Terry McLaurin, um, where I guess something about his hands technique when he's catching, he catches with his hands under the ball. And like historically, like that's a very difficult hands technique. And as a result, you are much lower on McLaurin because, you know, speaking probabilistically, receivers with that technique are much less likely to succeed. Now, McLaurin at this point has proven that he can succeed with that technique. You know, it's like Philip Rivers with his wonky throwing motion. It's not ideal, but it works for him. But that doesn't mean the next guy who comes out with that hands technique, you're going to be all over him just because McLaurin succeeded with it. That's a perfect example, actually. Yes, because McLaurin, it was McLaurin, early Doucette, and Golden Tate who were like the three players that, since I've been studying wide receivers, who would trap the ball to their body. And that that was, you know, a good example of something where if the player tends to trap the ball, clap their hands onto the ball, or do anything other than have their hands together to meet the ball with the appropriate position based on where the ball's arriving, the trajectory of it. Um, Very rarely are they able to have success in the league. And those are things that I think I just look at it from such a a micro standpoint that those things kind of build up from a model. I'm not looking at it from the broad perspective. I'm thinking about like, what are good techniques and why do those techniques work and why do they or why do the lack of techniques create more room for error and so a player like mclaurin yeah watching that it's over the years i've seen so many players who who when they used his techniques they just miss wildly you know they have and if they don't develop those techniques they when they have to face tighter coverage where the guy's slapping on their arm or slap is able to hit the ball or hit them in the back, it completely disrupts their process and they tend to have too many drops for a team to to be able to work with them as a have them as a contributor or a starter. And McLaurin was one of those guys that I just thought hasn't hasn't played a ton at Ohio State as a starter. What he's done has been very productive. But the process was just, it, you could look at it and go that, you know, when the coverage is tighter, when the, when the guys are even more precise, I mean, and you could see plays at Ohio State where he would make against tight coverage, but the differences might be something as small as, well, the guy wrapped him around the waist. In, in the NFL, the guy's going to wrap him around the waist and strike at his hands at the same time because that's the difference between an NFL corner and a and a good college corner you know they get more precise in the nfl you know a guy who's carrying the football maybe there's one or two guys on the field on defense who have the wherewithal to tackle and wrap and strike at the ball and maybe they have one good technique at doing that it it's you know when you go to you go to certain you know you go to the nfl and you watch a game and you'll see every player is striking at the ball every player has knows where the angle is to hit it whether it's from behind or how to punch over the top or how to pull the arm away they're all doing it and so when you've increased your chances from like one out of 11 guys doing it to 10 out of 11 guys doing it the chances of if your technique is faulty the chances go up that you're going to fumble the football so those are the types of things i'm looking at from a technical standpoint to say 
to, to project probably success or failure. And of course, there's going to be players who, who come through to that. And I think a, a good example of that in our industry-wide where is like Dalvin Cook was a good example of that. Um, where I think people looked at Dalvin Cook and they saw his metrics and they didn't like his vertical leap. They didn't like his um, three-cone time. They didn't like the, the shuttle times. And they felt like this isn't an elite athlete. And, you know, players who had who didn't fit these thresholds of times aren't good running backs in the league. And so and the and that may be true. That that may have been true to an extent, but at some point part of that too is looking at what does the player do well and can that fit into their does it fit a running style and is that and can that running style be successful? in in the league and for him it was and it was a lot about curvy linear movement where you know running at a at a certain speed being able to maintain your speed and instead of being a hard cutting back being one that kind of bends around defenders and he was that style of a player well the the testing didn't fit the testing didn't fit this the way he the style of play that he had and the style of play that he had clearly fit for the nfl if you could separate those two but that's a difficult thing to separate and you know that's an example where i was successful with that but at the same time there's plenty where you know you're still learning about you know there's the mclaurins in the world where you look at it and go i just don't see how that's going to be and i will tell you now the next terry mclaurin type of player that comes around i will probably miss on him too because until i can tell the difference between what made terry mclaurin terry mclaurin and what makes them early do set um, and be able to feel like I can consistently see that, I'll probably continue missing uh, on those types of guys. I'll err on the side of like, no, that's that that's unlikely, you know? Yeah, a little earlier you mentioned the, the big wide receiver thing. Um, and I don't know how many of your listeners are like, quote unquote, very online or have been around for the Twitter wars. Um, I know this was a really big thing circa like 2014 2015 that um and i think this is a great example of overconfident and overfit data analysis but it's kind of the early stages of like fantasy football analytics and people were diving into it and they discovered a trend that you know like big receivers were better than small receivers um and it like in recent years that had been true that remember the recent draft classes before that had been Julio yeah. Jones, A.J. Green, Tamarius Thomas, Des Bryant tended to be bigger guys. Um, Calvin Johnson was still at his peak then. Um, so that, you know, like that makes sense. And then also, I mean, to some extent, obviously bigger is better. Bigger players are drafted higher than smaller players. If you look at like the average size of, of receivers by like quintile in terms of draft capital, like the, the top 10% of receivers in draft capital are like two inches taller than the bottom 10% of receivers. Obviously, size matters. Um, so there's all this data analysis. And, um, you know, like it, I, you and Chase Stewart kind of got into it with some of the, the people who were in favor of big wide receivers. Um, and Chase did an excellent piece, I thought, that, was, that said, like, okay, obviously big is good. But if you control for draft capital, there's no evidence that big receivers who are drafted 10th overall do better than small receivers who are drafted 10th overall. Um, and one of the sites that had been pushing the big wide receiver movement to their eternal credit, they, they engaged with that analysis and they said, okay, yeah, that's obviously a great analysis. That's bad for our point. Um, but you were measuring, you know, like let's, let's, you know, run the same analysis. And there was a lot of back and forth and Chase was saying, well, you know, you're, you're doing draft capital linearly where like the difference between getting picked first overall and 16th overall is the same as the difference between getting picked 201st and 216th. And that's not how draft capital works. It's, it falls a power law distribution. And they accounted for that and the effect disappeared. And then they said, okay, well, what if you do height and weight and draft capital? And they found that, you know, like a, a model with like height and draft capital, height added no predictive lift. But if you did height and weight and draft capital, like all of a sudden at the confidence interval, P equals 0.002, like statistically significant results, that adds predictive lift. But like if you look at it, like predictive lift is usually married, usually measured by correlation. Like how well does this correlate with that? Um, and then especially like if you square the correlation and you get the R squared. Um, 
you know, we're kind of getting in the weeds, but like they had an R score value based on draft capital alone of like 0.42. And then if you did draft capital plus height plus weight, you got a R squared of like 0.43. So you're adding two variables to your model and it's predicting the sample better, sure, but it's just this tiny, tiny bit better. And that's really one of the classic hallmarks of overfitting, that if you add variables to the model, it's going to improve the predictive lift. The question is, does it improve the predictive lift enough to justify adding those variables? Because every variable is a risk that you're overfitting, that you're, you're predicting test scores based on whether the student's name is Sarah or not, and that it's going to perform worse out of sample. And then it was one of those classic examples where it like, over the next eight years, it really showed like all the value was in the small wide receivers going forward. You had, you know, like your Odell Beckhams and your Antonio Browns and, um, you know, Jalen Waddle today, Tyreek Hill, like the small guys have been the guys who have been killing it. Um, and that's, I mean, that to me was, is, is always a good reminder that considering more factors is going to improve your performance, but just because it improves your performance doesn't mean it's going to improve your performance you know not only is the nfl like we were talking about last week a game of of trends and counter trends but just adding more stuff to your model should be suspect it it should be a last resort uh you you want your model to be as simple as possible if you want to maximize performance out of sample and that's really just a nod to the uncertainty yeah and with scouting it's it it was fascinating because i do look back i mean for me who's someone who doesn't who doesn't have that level of expertise in analytics? Um, it was, it, it was just common sense looking at the past and thinking, well, there are still players like Isaac Bruce who are in the league, who are who are small, who are some, one of the greatest receivers in the league, and like thinking about so many players in the past who were smaller receivers, who played long term, who stretched over maybe multiple iterations of NFL uh, of NFL you know eras uh, or maybe they bridged eras and they were they were great players and what made them great and what made them great wasn't their wasn't their size or their height and so you know Chase did a fantastic job with that and I was so glad that he was willing to to engage in, on it on that level um, during that time, because it, I remember it was during that time because I had Odell Beckham, a very strong prospect. And I think that's what spawned the argument is they were like, well, he's he's too short. He's not he's not tall. He's too short. He's too light. And, you know, these are the guys that had to go. And it's just like, well, what about all these other guys? And it was the level of confidence in their their model was was kind of, dis- you know, some of them were great. I mean, obviously, a lot of people that we talked to weren't dismissive on that level. They were, they were, they were willing to engage and have a conversation. But there was a level of like certainty with it that that seemed a little bit of a false confidence. And it wasn't just in the fantasy space. I I came to find out later that there were teams, and one of them is the hat I'm wearing right now, Adam. That uh, that r- literally dismissed. And I'll tell you, it's a it's a nice shade of green um you, you know and they're and they're doing quite well these days um but they they tended to they they embraced that they embraced that whole model and they were dismissing wide receivers without even looking at them just by using that first in their process and there were scouts who were and that's part of probably where you get some of the enmity, but you know, kind of the, the animosity between, you know, old school scouts and some of the people coming in, is that there when they were brought in, you would have it was mismanaged. Okay, you'd have an owner bring them in. You'd have an owner's son who brought them in. I can tell it doesn't matter because I know I'm not going to be doing this work on on a on a high level. But say Jacksonville's. Jacksonville's um, Jaguars, the son, you know, Shad Khan's son, who Tony, who is like a a nice guy, you know, great guy, but you could tell that there was a little bit of a war going on, almost or conflict. It was it was it was kind of an an you know it, it was kind of an adversarial relationship, and it was even being and it either. It was because the scouts treated it that way to begin with and were resistant. And maybe Tony felt, I don't know, but maybe Tony felt like he was, he had to approach it that way. 
but it, it just felt like that it was they were continuing that approach so you know they would bring things in and say well we're going to show them that you know even you know that we're going to show them that these points don't make sense that their points don't make sense or that that you know someone who does study the film sees it differently than you guys do and that they're um that they're uh that the that it actually sides with the data you know because like for instance i did i did something a long time ago where they asked me to look at quarterbacks for them and it was a and they asked and they saw that i didn't like jimmy garoppolo because of his pocket play and they didn't the analytics didn't like jimmy garoppolo at least what they were doing and but their scouts loved jimmy garoppolo now what was funny is you know the the way it was approached to me i could tell that it was going in that direction i thought this isn't a, probably a great idea but okay um you know i gave them what i had and, and it wasn't anything they weren't asking me to do anything very high level you know he just wanted to use my stuff as a point which a was i'm sure that was received well some blogger who does fantasy football is like you know that's probably what was going to be responded back so I didn't really get too invested in anything that they were asking for from that standpoint, but it was, the whole thing was a shit show. If you ask me the way that was approached, but what was funny at the end is that the, the GM Dave Caldwell didn't side with Tony Khan or the scouts. Um, he didn't tell anybody who he was picking and he ended up picking Blake Bortles um, as opposed to who they were warring against to, for or against. And, and neither of them had wanted Blake Bortles. And when they got Blake Bortles, they were all disappointed. So, um, but you know the Eagles with the with the wide receiver part. I remember you know there were some people who I know who who were in those rooms who talked about that that it was it was presented as like well the owner wants this guy the guy's saying we're not even going to look at any of these wide receivers we're going to eliminate them and then we're going to look at the guys that we've already that fit our model now you're going to study those guys only now you're going to save time because see you don't have to study all these other guys. And they're kind of like, well, we'd like to study all these other guys because your model's going to return players. We feel like your model's going to return players that's of too limited of a sample, and that sample isn't proven to be the best thing. And so they ended up going with it because you know the politics in the office were, let's follow this, and it didn't work, you know. And they and it's it, funny too because like the Eagles circa that timeline like who were the most successful re receivers in their recent history it was deshaun jackson and jeremy macklin like they were not yeah a team that had had success with big receivers to that point yeah so it was it's 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 interesting how that goes and i think that's that's the problem is that the the problem isn't that the analytics sucked or that the film suck film study sucks it's the problem comes down to how we manage and present information and and how we train where we train it and who does it you know for me it's the the biggest problem is that owners come in owners often come in at the 11th hour to help make decisions and they don't consider the thing the factors they consider are bad and this is something that we've i've talked about before but i think it fits here is that you know the more people i've talked to who are within the league the the complaint comes down to that you've got people doing all this research, they get paid to do the work. And then in, you know, in April or in late March, they present that information. And the person who decides that they're going to take a complete left turn on that process was informed by somebody in a steam room at a health club about something that they heard Colin Cowherd say. And Colin Cowherd's a great radio show host, and he knows football as well as any other fan. You know, maybe a little better than most fans because he gets to talk to people who have some level of expertise. But he doesn't do that research. He's just he's just a an average Joe like anybody else with a basically with a who's just more articulate and gets paid well for for being entertaining. And you know the fact that someone who owns a an organization like this is going to take that the weight of what Colin Cowherd says over the people he's actually paying paying money, you know, a salary, 
paying salaries to who who are spending a year, year and a half on this, whether it's analytical or whether it's straight film oriented or it's a combination of both. That's where it gets crazy. And that's the frustrating part that a lot of people have to deal with is that these, you know, we think of the Haslam's or, or um, the former Titans um, owner, Bud Adams, I think it was Bud Adams, you know, who, who, you know, the, you know, there was a, there was a thing going on where they wanted Jay Cutler or Matt Leinart and the scouts wanted Jay Cutler, um, Matt Leinart's former quarterback coach, Norm Chow was brought in. He wanted Leinart, um, Jeff Fisher wanted Cutler. He was in agreement with the scouts and, um, even called up Mike Shanahan and said, listen, if, you know, I know you guys are in the market for a quarterback right now, you know, or Shanahan called up, uh, yeah, Shanahan called up Fisher and said, I know you're in the market for a quarterback right now. What do you guys think of Cutler? Because what I found out later was he wanted Leinert, but Ted Sundquist and the scouts wanted Cutler and they, and they had made an agreement um, with Shanahan that like, if we can't get Liner, will you be okay with Cutler? And he said, yes. But what, what happened behind the scenes is that he knew they wanted Liner. So he called up Jeff Fisher and said, what do you, I know you guys like Cutler. What do you think about him? What's, you know, what's your take? And Jeff said, yeah, we want him. This is why we want him over. And he listened to that and was like, okay, I can, I can get with going with Cutler if we do this. But at the end of the day, Bud Adams getting kicked out of Houston effectively wanted to just flip the bird at the city of Houston and wanted to take their hometown guy in, in Vince Young. And, you know, that it's those types of decisions you see. Like the Steelers owners tend to be good. The Roonies tend to be more about what's the information say? What do you guys think? Let's hear that. And who's making the best argument if we're at an impasse? And I'm going to, and then if I can add my perspective from that, that that's great. Whereas other guys come in and it's kind of like they want it. They have all this information to go, but no, nah, you know, I got, I think you guys are missing all of this. You know, this is what I think needs to happen. And I think that they end up when they make decisions like that, and then they bring in somebody from the outside and they say, you're going to work with the scouts and do this instead of like, but you don't know anything about what they're doing. You don't, you're, you're the president of your organization or of your operations or your GM aren't really on board and trained with this. Then you're just sticking someone in the middle of the wilderness and telling them to, for those guys to work it out without having any oversight or management to really understand how that should work and how to manage to, to make sure it does work. And when they do that, it's just, it's going to go to hell. And that's basically what's happened with, I think, a lot of analytics is that it's either done on a low level where it's a quality control coach that maybe is doing the work, doing some of the, getting some of the work that they do and they're doing grunt work for them. And then they're selling it as we work with NFL teams and you do, but you're not doing it at a high level or if you're doing it on a high level, you're working with NFL teams, but you're working really hand in hand with the GM. And then the GM is parsing that information downward. But the problem with that is while that's, you're working with someone on a high level, um, generally you have an NDA. Um, you're not, you're not going to be sitting there going on the internet, telling people to sell subscriptions that you do, that you do analytics for the NFL. But at the same time, you're not able to spread that you're, you know, because the GM's doing it. Sometimes the GM isn't also well-trained in that information and then their ability to, to kind of get their organization on that same page can be difficult. I think it's gotten better. You know, these are the things I'm telling you are things that I would look at say 10 years ago and say, this was the problem or eight or not, you know, maybe even seven or eight years ago. But I think in the past three or four years, I think you're seeing, teams do a better job of how do we create this as an in-house part of our operation and have it all fit together, um, you know, better than what they've done in the past. 
Yeah, I mean, it, I'm reminded how old a lot of these issues are. You know, what's the saying? The the fool thinks himself wise, but the wise man knows he's a fool. Um, or there's there's an effect called the Dunning-Kruger effect that says, um, you know, like when you first start on a subject, when you first start gaining expertise, you think that you're great, right? And then mm -hmm. the more you learn about it, the more you realize you don't know. So the most confident people are the people who are not true experts. They're kind of dabblers. And I know, I mean, I, I'm very familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect. You learn how to do like linear correlations in Excel and all of a sudden you think you're an analytics genius. And I've totally been there. I mean, I, I can, you know, equal coral in Excel all day long and I'm happy to do so. I mean, I write, I get a lot of articles out of equal coral in, in Excel. I use Google Sheets because I'm too cheap for Excel. Um, but, you know, the result is that people are listening, you know, confident cells. And if you go to two people and one person says, one person is very respectful of the uncertainty, which is the appropriate standpoint, because the uncertainty is huge and swamps basically everything. And the other person is disrespectful of the uncertainty and says, no, 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 absolutely. You know, like big receivers are the path to success. Here I have evidence. This proves it. Who are you going to listen to? You're going to listen to the guy who believes in himself, not the guy who doubts himself. Um, you know, I mentioned once, like, how would you feel about a team that, like, really liked two quarterbacks and had two picks in the first round and just drafted both of them? And a common response I got was, oh, I would feel that the GM didn't believe in himself. But, like, GMs believe in themselves all the time, and quarterbacks still have a 50-50 hit rate. You know, like, maybe yeah. they just believed in both. I don't know. I think I agree. I'm here. I hear you. I, I, it's kind of – that's a funny premise and, and a good one because, you know, at the end of the day, I'd be like, I'd like to see somebody do that for once, you know. I would love it. And, like, you look at Washington with um, Robert Griffin and Kirk Cousins – you know, or like the example I bring up was Dak Prescott. The year Dallas wanted Dak Prescott, they were all in on Paxton Lynch. They wanted Paxton Lynch bad. Yeah. And Denver jumped ahead of them, took Paxton Lynch. If da if Denver hadn't done that and Dallas had gotten Paxton Lynch, wouldn't they be better off if they had also drafted Dak Prescott too? Like why? Yeah. It's such an important position. Why limit yourself to one? But people want that illusion of certainty. They want the GM to at least exude this sense that they know what they're doing and drafting two quarterbacks in the same draft class, you know, undermines that sense. Uh, but the, I mean, that's the play that's it's respectful of uncertainty, which is, is the dominant force here in analyzing football, like whatever angle you're coming, scouting film analytics, whatever. Yeah. And I think it's fat, you know, the uh, one guy I would, I wish I could have on my show, but I can't, uh, you know, in terms of like, just, whether it's watching film or having discussions like this too, one of the guys that I'd love to have is someone who's, you know, I've talked about a lot over the years in my, uh, at my site and, and who, who's worked with multiple teams at a high level and has scouting experience is a, does analytics by for a living um, and does it, you know, from, for a fortune 250 company you know, and did it for a number of teams. And, you know, he still has NDAs. He's out of the NFL now, has just decided to get out. But he, he still has a number of NDAs that are in effect, so he can't really do anything on that level. He is on Twitter, and he does talk about a, a specific team a good bit, but not not in pro football. Um, but he's, um, you know, I remember the first time we had conversations, uh, and he... He said, you know, I, I present a lot of information. He does a lot of things on um, on archetypes. He's, he's built a lot of things on archetypes. And he's shown me some of his work. And he said that at the end of the day, he says it's still the, you know, the variables with the football, the ball still bounces funny. And he says, and, and it's still unpredictable in how it bounces. And he says, and you have to account for that. You have to realize that uncertainty there with it. And it's always going to be a level of uncertainty. And he said, there's also going to be a level of intuition. He said, I, I feel like that when it comes to scouting players, there's still, there's certain, there, there's a certain level that intuition does play a part. He said, and I think that that's a hard thing for some people to, to get past um, with it. But, but you're right. I mean, that level of uncertainty I think the longer I do this, and especially with certain certain players that I come across, there's always players every year that I'm just like um, trying to. It's like a it's just a struggle to figure out where to put them because also the more information you have and the more you've learned, 
the more difficult it becomes because you go, well, it could go this way. It could go this way. There's like, you know, there's like five or six criteria points that could go in any different direction where you're feeling like, uh, you just, you know, you, it's difficult to project where that's going to be. And, and I find that, um, it's fun. It's fun at the, at the, like afterwards, but at the moment of when you're doing, especially if you're on like a timeline of trying to get work done, um, it can be maddening. I've lost, I've lost sleep over like projecting players, which just when I think about that, like right now, I feel how pathetic that feels that I feel like I've lost sleep over like where to project a player, um, you know, in football. I mean, seriously, I, I'm not losing sleep over whether this, this project I'm doing might cure cancer or, or, um, you know, help like tons of people. You know, all I'm doing is entertaining, you know, entertaining a handful of people on earth, you know, who, who, who want this information. Now they may treat it that way sometimes. Um, but most of my readers have perspective. The ones who, the ones who treat it like I'm, I'm curing cancer and, and I prevented their, you know, that I, that I killed a family member because I got something wrong. They usually don't stay very long on my, on what I do, but, uh, but it does feel, but you know, it's something that you're invested in and you learn all this information and the, the more, you know, the more you learn about the less you do know. And so those things you, you account for, you think there's so many players now that in the past, like you would say, I, I look at a player and go, yeah, I think I nailed this evaluation. And now, you know, 17 years into it, I'll look at a player and go, well, here's the, t here's the 10 ways it could just really go wrong. Like here's yeah. the 10 way I, I tend to feel like nowadays I know more ways of where my evaluation can be wrong rather than being certain about it being right. Yeah. You mentioned, um, archetypes, um, and my favorite draft analytics guy, uh, who does not have any NDAs. He's a guy, he goes on Twitter, uh, at seven rounds in April, number seven, and then the words rounds in April. Um, and he did his master's practicum on basically outperforming the NFL draft. And he built a model and he got his um, professors to verify that, like, yes, this outperforms the NFL draft. And he worked hard on the archetypes as well, which basically it's saying that, like, instead of like linear relationships, like a lot of people are doing linear regressions and it says more height is more good, less height is less good. But like, especially at wide receiver, you look at like, this is a position where Calvin Johnson and Wes Welker were both tremendously success successful first team all pros and they could not physically look any more different and if you have something that's like looking at Wes Welker and Calvin Johnson and saying is height good or bad it's just going to get completely screwed up and so I think the best approach there is is archetypes where like here's a style of player that has proven to be successful you have your Wes Welker type right here's another style of player you have your Calvin Johnson type and then when players are coming in um, he basically looks and says, does this player resemble somebody based on his measurables and his production profile? Does he resemble somebody who has had success in the past in the NFL? And he's always very clear that like, just because he doesn't resemble somebody who hasn't had success doesn't mean he won't be successful. There, there's always outliers. But if you're making probabilistic bets, you want to bet on players who look like successful players and not players who resemble a lot of players who have struggled and not had success. Um, and I really think that, like, that's the way to do analytical draft analysis that's that's respectful of the uncertainty, but still making good, solid, evidence-based bets. Um, and I was laughing when you were saying that that apparently the Jaguars analytics department hated Garoppolo because, I mean, like I said, he's my favorite analytics guy for the draft. And his two favorite quarterbacks of the last decade or so were Pat Mahomes and Jimmy Garoppolo. Yeah. Um, so it's just an illustration that, you know, analytics are not a monolith. There's just like scouts can look at the same film and see different things. Analytics can look yeah. at the same data set and find completely different things to like, too. Yeah. And it's funny that you brought up, I would say, you know, I love the example of Calvin Johnson and Wes Welker because it really highlights that um, you're playing different positions there. You're playing split end and slot. One that would even fit just as well and because they played the same role was Calvin Johnson and Steve Smith. Like they literally did the same types of things. One just was taller, but they were both unbelievably explosive, which kind of gives you an idea also of a different archetype there too, where you could be, 
you could play like Calvin Johnson, but be a shrimp, you know? And that was, and that, that's, I, I think I don't, I've been trying to work on doing archetypes for my own scouting, like define them. And I've, I, I've stopped for a while from doing it because there's a lot of things I inherently kind of do. Like Dalvin Cook to me was an archetype. Like the curvy linear movement back is a is an archetype. So when you have that archetype, you kind of throw out the you or you don't throw it out, but you 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 diminish the value of certain metrics that you're seeing because if if he has like if he has enough speed and quickness and you see it on the field versus players who have have good timed metrics that he's facing and he's able to defeat good angles from them on film. That tells me that he's fast enough and that it's just a stylistic thing. Um, and so I look at players from that. I, I try and look at players in that way where, or a Cooper cup as an example, you know, if Cooper cup was being used as an outside receiver on a regular basis, like that, that was like the majority of his looks. He was strictly an X receiver or strictly a flanker. I might've been lower on him and, or not as, um, not as enthusiastic about him because of his lack of 40 speed. You know, I would have felt like he can't stretch the field in those situations the way they're going to demand of him. But when you looked at what he did well, plus what he um, what his metrics were, and that his metrics were comparable to someone like Allen Robinson, who was had terrific metrics in short area quickness and explosion, and you look at a player like that and you say, well, he's going to be used in the slot. He's going to have two-way goes. What do two way goes demand? What is the slot? What are, you know, he's going to have that quickness is going to be emphasized, you know? And so being able to pair the metric or the measurement with an on, with certain on field behaviors that fit a role, that's kind of the key, I think, to creating a good archetype um, for a player that, or using it as a check and using the film as a check and balance with the numbers. Um, because then you can, you can kind of see the logic or the thread between all of those. And I think that, that make, that can give you a little bit more, um, success maybe with being able to make those determinations. Yeah. My favorite example is like, I forget the exact cutoffs, but if you look, um, since the early nineties, there are two receivers who have like 8,000 yards and 16 yards per reception. Like there's two guys who are like the best deep threats of this, whatever this super modern era is. And it's Vincent Jackson and it's Deshaun Jackson, who I don't think could possibly look any more different. You know, Vincent <laughs> Jackson is like six, five, you know, like fast for a big guy who had like four, four speed, but it's very straight line speed. You know, Deshaun Jackson is like five ten charitably with like, Four two speed. They're they're just very very different receivers, and yet those were the two best deep threats of the modern era, the, this hyper modern era. And it really gets to that like wide receiver, especially is it, it, like you said, it's not one position. It's not it's not even two positions. It's like eight different positions. Yes. And if you look at you know people bag on like on the combine, you know, um, which funny enough, the combine was you know, like the combine was introduced in the sixties because the Dallas Cowboys had an analytics staffer and he wanted comparable data so that he could feed it through a computer and run analytics on it. You know, the NFL's viewed as an anti-analytics league, but like it was a trailblazer. It was way ahead of the time yeah, 40 years ago on analytics. Um, but you look at the combine and people, you know, rag on like combine superstars and, you know, like underwear superstars. Um, but I've seen analysis that like, combine performance has a strong correlation with career outcomes at every single position except wide receiver where there's no correlation whatsoever because they're running linear correlations and wide receiver is not a linear position you've got two diametrically opposed archetypes on the opposite end of the physical scale and they're both successful and so a linear model is going to look at that and be like there's no there's no relationship there whatsoever yeah and it's funny because i mean the to me, if if you're gonna bag on the combine, bag on the the football media who covers the combine and reacts the way that they do, you know, yeah. and and maybe it's because they spend too much time at the steakhouse and networking and yucking it up. I will probably be doing that one day myself, uh, um, 
as you know, as I have fewer responsibilities and feel like I can, I can take that time out before I write the RSP. But like the, but you know, I know a lot of people who go there and they're working hard doing what they do, but the reactions to it aren't very informed all the time. It's more, it's not, they're not looking at the numbers on that matter. And there's some, and people have gotten better with it too, but like the reactions tend to create this because they know it's going to get clicks, you know, so they're going to talk about the the, surf, the superficial things. But, you know, running back's another good example of that to me because I've always said that, you know, running back, you look at Brandon Jacobs, you look at Darren Sproles, and both have been successful running backs in the NFL, or a James Brooks, who I just talked about last week, who was 180 pounds and had some of his uh, best, who's, who's 180 pounds and had some of his best um, production in his, like, early 30s. I mean, like had averaged over five yards per carry, had like, you know, between 1,200 and 1,700 total yards, had 3,000 yard seasons, you know, over the age of 30 in an era that was, the you know, a rougher era, you know, of football. Um, and you look at those those differences and you realize that they have archetypes too, you know, and I think that, that that's part of it is that you – you have to look at what they can do and what that stylistically fits into. Whereas other positions are easily more predictable. I think Justice Mosqueda would be a good first one to tell you that defensive end, you know, pretty much they feel like if we get raw material, we can mold defensive end. You don't even need to be good at the college level, at com- comparable to the NFL. We can, we get you in, put a couple of years of techniques on you. If you have that short area you know, quickness, that acceleration, you can, you have that ability to bend with your hips and your knees and ankles, get that flexion. If you have all that, we, we have a good shot of being able to make you into a, a good NFL contributor at that position. Yeah. Uh, another example Jerome Bettis and Warwick Dunn both finished their careers with 15,000 yards from scrimmage. You know, Jerome Bettis was built like a bus Warwick Dunn's closest physical comp would probably be Deshaun Jackson. Dude was like 180 pounds. Yeah, he was a Vespa, you know? Yeah, 15,000 yards scrimmage from both of them. It's um, it's funny thinking about defensive end. I think a lot of it is like task-oriented, you know, like a defensive end, especially a pass rusher, like they've got one task, like you got one job. And so I think the projection is a lot simpler. Like the the, the number of things you're asking them to do, first of all, it's smaller, and second of all, Uh, it's consistent. Like all pass rushers have the same job in, you know, obviously there's some scheme differences. I don't mean to trivialize. And there's this tendency to paint football players as cavemen who aren't doing any mental processing or anything. And that's couldn't be further from the truth. But in terms of like on the scale of football, the, the, the tasks and responsibilities for a pass rusher conceptually, I think are much simpler than they are for a quarterback or a wide receiver or, you know, like a center or something. Um, and as a result, I, you know, speaking of uncertainty, I think there's a lot less uncertainty in terms of projection there than there would be at running back or at wide receiver or at some of these other positions where there's so many different archetypes and so many different ways to win. Yeah, and it's and this, this will be a this should be a conversation probably for the next time. But one of the things, and maybe we already talked about it. It's um, it's Thursday, and as you can tell, I apologize um, in, in retrospect. I feel like I've been kind of rambling like crazy this week. Um, but the, the idea of the closer you are to the middle of the field, the more processing you have to do of, inf- of different factors. And this was something that was brought up at, um, during a podcast for The Athletic when they brought Rick Spielman on, the former Vikings GM, and they asked him about um, quarterbacks and processing information, and he said that they're that the NFL is more and more trying to embrace certain tests where they do um, where they try and test the processing speed, the mental processing speed of players, and they found that the closer you are to the middle of the field, the more information you tend to have to process um, as a player. And so they found that with quarterback and running back, they expected it with quarterback. They didn't quite expect it, I think, with running back. They found it to be a little bit more surprising in some respects, which I find kind of interesting because, you know, you get a ball and you have suddenly anywhere between 15 to 
to to 20 people to have to account for on a play um that's a lot of processing of information to to deal with and i think that um you know from that you know from an end perspective i think you know obviously they're closer into the middle of the field on some level and you might look at wide receiver and say well you know they start wider out but they often finish in the middle of the field so i think it's often how often are you in the middle of the field um that that kind of matters more than or or has some some bearing like if you're strictly a a vertical receiver you know if you're ted ginn probably more times than not you don't have to process as much as you would if you're wes welker you know or if you're or if you're uh, aj brown you know who works across the middle of the field you probably have to process a little bit more but you know or if you're a space back you know if you're if you're deandre swift and they're trying to um create models where you're basically returning kicks um by running draw plays or screens or giving you um perimeter runs you're processing less than if you're frank gore and having to run between or nick chubb running between the tackles um you know there's a there's a little bit and you're the the diversity of run schemes that you're going to play you're going to be working behind are going to have a little bit more um it's going to be greater and that and that factors into you have to know more about what's going on defensively and what and and working in conjunction with players a little bit more and i think that that's a that's an area that we should probably talk about a little in more detail as the as the the time goes on it's funny uh, you mentioned returning kicks um you know like one of my things is like, is this important? Do you see people that have it? Then it's probably important. Do you see people who don't have it? It's probably not important. You know, like, like the example I use is coaches, like fourth down decision making. They're getting it wrong. Like, absolutely. There's no doubt. Like guys like Andy Reid and um, Tomlin, they're they're leaving win probability on the table because they're making suboptimal fourth down decision making. Um, but the fact that so many of the best coaches in NFL history were bad at fourth down decision making probably suggests there's one probability to be had there, but it's, it's one of the less important parts of the job, right? You don't have any all-time great coaches who are bad at scheming. Scheming is very important. You don't have any all-time great coaches who are bad at like motivating players, right? That's very important. You get a lot of all-time great coaches who are bad at fourth down decision making. That's much less important than the other tasks. Um, and, and, you know, I, you mentioned kick returns, and it's it's always been interesting to me that, like, the best kick returners are predominantly running backs, and the best punt returners are predominantly wide receivers. And a lot of times the exceptions are guys that prove the rule. Christian McCaffrey is a running back who is great on punt returns, but he's also, like, the best receiving running back in the NFL. Cordell Patterson was a wide receiver who was great at kick returns. Now we're seeing that, like, he's much better natural fit for running back. Um, and so I always think that I think of kick returning as like a, a processing position, right? You have to kicking kick returns are about making the right read. Punt returns are more about making the right move where, you know, wide receivers are more accustomed to operating in space. And that's why they're better on punt returns. Running backs are more accustomed to like reading blocker blockers leverage and reading like where the hole, not where the hole is now, but where it's going to be like a second and a half from now and making those reads. I think that's a fantastic point, and and I'll add to it. And I never thought about it this way, but it makes perfect sense. And also, I would say that wide receivers are a little tougher than running backs in this one facet, whereas running backs tend to have a runway when they know they're going to hit somebody or get hit. Um, and while they they may take more contact on a, a more often in a game, wide receivers the 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 weight or the intensity of the contact that they can take on any given play is far greater on a regular basis than it is with a running back because kick returns are tough because there's such a long runway that players are coming but you have people who are set up to block and are more equipped to do that so you may take a big hit but you tend to be able to avoid and navigate a lot that a lot if you're a what but on a punt return it's that's the wildest play in football. I mean, like that is, you have to be a little nuts to be a punt returner, I think more than a kick returner. And with the, and you have to have your head on a swivel a little bit more. And you also have to be uh, acclimated to taking those big hits. You know, I've known more people who've quit running back who were pretty good running backs 
And when they quit it, I said, well, what happened? And they said, I got leveled in the backfield, didn't see it coming, got leveled in the backfield. And, you know, usually they had some sort of neurological response that, that, you know, sent them that they realized they didn't want to keep coping with that. Like, you know, I couldn't feel my, couldn't feel my limbs for 15 minutes, you know, or I tingled all over for like an hour, you know, and like after that, I, I, I was done. But like wide receivers deal with those types of hits far more often. So I could see how they are better as punt returners in that regard. That's a really cool observation. Jeff Fisher had a really cool drill he did back when Derek Mason was his punt returner. And Derek Mason was an all-pro returner before he even made it as a receiver. Um, But he used to have this drill where he'd have the punter kick the ball and he'd like hold up a number of fingers and he'd have the punt returner, you know, field the punt and then tell him how many fingers he had been holding up. Wow. Right? And so, like he'd punt and Fisher would hold up three fingers and then the punt returner would field the ball and then say, you held up three fingers. And the trick was if they answered correctly, they failed the drill. Cause Jeff Fisher said, do not take your eyes off the ball. If you are looking at how many fingers I have, you have failed the drill. You need your eyes on the ball the entire way, <laughs> which I love that drill so much, but like, that's so insane when you think about it, that yeah. receivers, he wanted receivers to call a fair catch or not call a fair catch without even looking at the field. He wanted them, their eyes on the ball. And if you screw that up and like you misjudge the time and there's defenders around, you know, there's there's coverage players around you that you weren't anticipating, you're going to field the ball and immediately get leveled. I mean, I agree. You have to be nuts to, to field punts. Yeah. Yeah. It's a That's a crazy... It's a crazy gig. I don't know, man. Um, but this was a fun conversation. Um, it's always great getting a chance to catch up with you, Adam. We'll have you on next week to, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about the game and, and its variety of ways that we can analyze it. And uh, we appreciate you guys listening. The feedback on this show has been tremendous, you know, and obviously due in large part to the work that Adam does here. You can find his work at footballguys.com. You can find him on Twitter at Adam Harstead find me at Matt Waldman on Twitter as well as at Football Guys. Thanks again. Have a good week.